Hey, I'm Brandon from Promises Cap Collective. This is the Hey, How's It Going show. I'm here with Fred Ashman, who is a director, pilot, musician, author, CEO of his own multi-million dollar company, and he's now semi-retired. Hey, Fred, how's it going? Great, Brandon. It's my pleasure to be here with you. That's well, great having you. So first off, do you want, why don't you plug, shout out, whatever you'd like, uh, anybody you'd like, uh, do all that stuff. Well, I'd like to uh, plug my book because after... 40 years in the business, uh, and I'm still very active, but uh, running a production company, everybody asked, how did you start from zero right out of college? And by the time before you were 30, have a multi-million dollar production company going? Well, I never wanted to write down the tricks of the trade uh, because I didn't want to fuel my competition. And then I retired and I said, you know, a lot of real good pros helped me out along the way. And uh, so I said, you know, to pay it forward, why don't you write it down? And I never really thought about how I did it. So I, I took a couple of years and wrote this book called Advocate for the Audience. And it's gotten some real good reviews from some pros. And it's all about how to take your company, a small company, and grow it and how to build your brand and what are the basis for someone like myself who uh, really had a shot at Hollywood and stepped away from it. And I went into mostly the corporate business, but I ended up doing some million dollar documentaries, uh, some broadcast pilots. And now I'm under contract for uh, televised uh, productions that uh, one's a, a big series that's under development that I've hired as executive producer and director on and another uh, series. I'm doing two ep shooting two episodes of a series dramatic series. And then uh, in 2017, I directed 10 episodes of a, another broadcast series, which was a big musical variety kind of a Tonight Show's format uh, in front of a 300-person audience every night. So I've had some good ex experience and great help along the way, but this really tells you how to pitch multi-million dollar companies and we competed with the biggest in L.A., New York, and around the world. And once we had these key clients, big ones like American Airlines, um, and we didn't do the thing, the videos you saw on the airplanes. We did videos like the IMAX films for their museum and big projects. Uh, all over, And we did this all over the world for a number of big corporations. The Sony Global Dealer Meeting in, in Japan, big multi-million dollar production. We did that uh, starting with a blank piece of paper and doing all the creative, all the content, and then going on location and putting it on. So how to do it is in this book. And it's only available on my website because Amazon had wanted, uh, they wanted to charge 65 bucks a book for it. And I, I'm selling them for 25. Why do so, they want to charge 65? Well, that's charge? way they could pay me $2 a copy. Oh, <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. So anyway, uh, I do have the book and the website is uh, fredashman.com. It's very, very easy. Fantastic. That'll be in the description as well. So awesome. Uh, if that's all you'd like to shout out. All right. Yep. All right. No, so, pretty much it. All right. Cool. Check out, uh, check out Fred Ashman. It'll be in the description. So Fred, how you won over a hundred awards awards for your work which award are you most proud of and how did it take to win it well i think of all the awards we won uh having 18 of the cine golden eagles 
was a big deal. We have over 80 of the telly awards. And most of the awards are for non-broadcast because I stayed out of the broadcast arena after getting a taste of uh, L.A. in my early years, and I walked away. I had a William Morris agent as a young guy. And uh, without getting into all the whys and wherefores, um, we do a lot of the non-broadcast things. The, the big documentary I talked about was a million-dollar documentary, and we made all that money back plus a very handsome profit uh, by selling the DVDs as opposed to going abroad. Yes, the Discovery Channel offered us $150,000 for the million-dollar production, which would have been okay if they just wanted to put it on broadcast. It would have been extra money. But we sold it, sold the DVDs, and that's where all the money was. But they wanted to, the 150000 had to cover all the rights for all the DVDs as well, which didn't oh, make a lot of sense. That's I, like throwing um, money away. Yeah, so when they when they said that to me, I had two words for them. The first was a verb, the second was a pronoun. Um, and it ended with off. So <laughs> That's great. Oh, that's so, great. That's uh, awesome. so yeah, we've, I've had a great career. The business has been very good to me. And a lot of uh, real seasoned pros that I've surrounded myself with have uh, helped immensely with my success. All right, cool. Um, so you most part of the tellies, uh, what, what exactly, if you want to explain that a little bit? I, I don't know anything about it. Yeah, well, uh, for example, there's... When you're talking about production and film and video, and and live events as well, it's it's a it's a team effort. This is all based on a team teamwork. It's it's not a solo act. You have to get out there and you have to have a good team. And anybody can screw something up in a big way if you're not real careful. So you surround yourself with people who are better than you. And it's not unlike. Uh, the manager and conductor of, a, of an orchestra. Uh, you really are running the thing, and if you're the composer, you're relying on all the musicians to pull it off. So you want the best musicians for the specialty you need. And if you're in a recording studio, you gotta go to a good studio with a good engineer, or it all falls apart. So if I'm going out to, to shoot, I want a good director of photography who's going to do the lighting and run the camera. I can run a camera, but there's a lot of guys who can run a camera better than me. So I would choose somebody who's really, really good at that. I'm a writer, producer, and director. So I come up with the concepts. I do a lot of the writing, most of it. And then as a director, I know what I want to capture. If I'm working with actors, I know how to work with actors. And then you got to cast really good actors. This is team art. And uh, uh, that's how you build your own brand because they will help you turn out a product that works and is really good. And unlike, not unlike an architect who doesn't necessarily build every piece of the project, uh, the director actually follows through and, and directs the production or the construction, if you will. But you've got to start with a solid base, a solid story. It starts with story. What kind of a story are you telling? Just like in your podcast, what kind of a story are we telling that helps people understand something that they didn't understand or find it intriguing about something that they hadn't hadn't thought of before? And if you've got visuals going, can we take you someplace that you haven't been and give you information 
that is meaningful to you. That's what we're always trying to do. So what's the story? So trying to help you you today is find a story. So the Telly Award itself is a like a group award. So it went to your production company, kind of thing. It goes, well, it depends. It goes to production company. I've got a lot of them as director. Uh, it it goes to uh, both individuals. So we have both individual awards and uh, awards to the production company, uh, which I was the head of. And oh, okay, that's how that works. Neat, nice. Yeah, learning uh, about awards as I. As I go on, like I learned a bit about the Grammys when I had uh, uh not Ralph Sutton, uh, Dusk Bennett on. He's a producer, and uh, I had to meet him, talk to him, told me those Grammys won. I learned a bit about that, and I'm learning about the Telly Awards and all that. Um, well, so the things about the awards it's interesting, and, and it worked for us in the non-broadcast arena. Uh, we were we had very large corporations for many many years, 35 years in a row with uh, American Airlines. Uh, 37 years in a row with uh, uh, NCR Corporation, where they bring in 5,000 people from all over the world for their huge events, uh, like a sales event. And it's really um, a motivation event to because these are the best people. So you, they're already motivated. So it's, I don't like to call it a motivation event. It's actually a retention of your best employees. So you need to tell them a story and give them a reason that why this company has a future. So you have to get in and, and really tell a true story, but do it in a very uh, powerful way that touches both emotions and intellectual uh, stimulus at the same time. And for example, in uh, we, we go into these great big venues and it's like a giant rock concert, but it's got some speeches and we actually worked with the executives on how to make, not make the speeches really boring. Uh, if somebody wasn't very good, in a speech, we would actually try to use videos uh, to help them get their message across and actually craft their message in a way that was important to the audience. Because a lot of corporate speeches are way off the mark. They're talking about their own uh, report card often. Well, we did this and that's my division did that and all that. They, the people in that audience already know that. And they have the the people in these audiences have the biggest BS meters at all. You can't you can't snow them, and they know instantly when you are. So working the content, and again going right to the core, what's the story, and then putting things around it that are really cool, and you find the stories that you can tell visually. And so we would create these really cool videos. Won a lot of awards with the videos alone. Um, and then you integrate it. And in one case, in, for example, Barcelona, we had uh, a lot of live elements in the show, including a 50-piece live orchestra doing original score work. Plus, we uh, brought 12 musicians from the U.S. studio musicians to really make it cook and five singers. And at the, follow, at the last night, we did a complete, originally created uh, music variety with visual show. And then we also integrated the live orchestra into the daytime business meeting. So it was a spectacle, but it also had a lot of content. And that's how we kept that con that uh, co those contracts for so many years. We would deliver what they wanted. Uh, in American Airlines case, we actually uh, did two IMAX films that ran in their museum for about five, six years apiece. And 
the, the audiences would come out and you could generally see a tear in their eye and you watch them during the, uh, the filming or not during the film, but watching the film, they would be rolling in their chairs as we, we shot from Learjets. We had some great, great footage. And, but it also was a compelling story that touched emotions. And that's how we kept the, these companies coming back for all these years. We were able to deliver a product that was really high quality and it nailed the story and touched the audience both in the heart and in the mind. That's interesting. I, I like that a lot. So you put a, a lot of, a lot of uh, faith and uh, what was the word? A lot of dedication into your work. That's awesome. Oh, it's not work when you love it. I mean, I've loved this business from an early age. The other thing I, I think is really important for people who want to get ahead, and I'm not the first one to, to say this. It's been, it's been said by many, many successful people. Most successful people have goals and written goals, uh, and they're not real specific and it's usually not quite as generic as I just want to make a lot of money. I did not go into the business to make a lot of money. I ended up in the business because I didn't want to work for the companies in L.A. because I didn't like the people at the heads of them. I found them to be uh, have low uh, integrity. Mm. And uh, so I wanted to get into the business young. And I, I chose the path that was non-broadcast at the time. And it allowed me the opportunity to grow faster and bigger as long as I could produce the product. So I did that for a long time. Yeah. Uh, so what we, uh, what we were able to do was to, uh, sorry, I got a little distracted there. My wife okay. just came home. Um, what I really wanted to do was to have fun, uh, do production, be a director. And going back to those goals, when I was 13 years old, uh, I had a teacher in school. They did, uh, it's sort of a, uh, a test to see what you're going to be good at. And really, if you get down Aptitude to it, it's a test. you grow up kind of thing. So what I did was uh, when, I, when I sat down and did that, I came up with, I want to be a, a professional trumpet player. I started playing trumpet at 13. So I wanted to be a professional musician. I wanted to also be a recording engineer. My dad was an engineer, but he was a more of a facilities planning engineer type, uh, you know, regular engineer. But I wanted to be an audio engineer. I wanted to be a TV director. That was really my number one. And I wanted to be a pilot. And I've done them all. That's fantastic. Uh, and I, I forgot, I, but I wrote them down at 13. And I didn't really look at them again until I was about 15, 16. And I saw them in some notes from my junior high years. And I kind of laughed. And, uh, but that, that plants it in the back of your mind. You're not thinking about it every day. But it's there. And then as opportunities came up, I ended up that all those things I really did want to do. And I, was, I found a way to do them. I turned Perot as a musician at 17 years old. I directed my first commercial television show at a local station through a junior achievement program when I was 18 and went on from there. Started flying in my early 20s, finished school uh, and started a production company, very small company of one with, with some part-time people. 
and then slowly had to build a company in order to service the clients we had because we had a lot of work. So, and you can't do it alone. That's crazy. Yeah. I'm sure you had a lot of help in networking. So what does it take to become a CEO, a successful CEO? Well, in the traditional sense, you want your MBA and, and, and uh, business experience, but I find that fresh MBAs right out of college lack a lot of the human skills that are required. And it's take somebody who's a little bit more well-balanced. A lot of, uh, a lot of CEOs are so numbers focused that they forget about the human element. And those who have a balance of both the financial and the, if you will, the human side of understanding business and understanding people and motivation tend to be more successful long-term. The uh, CFO types, when they take over companies, often have trouble sustaining the company. They can clamp down. The, they're all about cutting, whereas the people who have a stronger marketing side to them are all about filling the bucket and increasing sales rather than just cutting expense because you can often cut, cut expense at the um, cost of, of long-term growth and, and you, you start to cut services, customers start to get ticked off with you and you start losing your place or you lose the market, the market changes. Uh, so I was a CEO of a small company. We did pretty well for a long time. I mean, I've owned four airplanes and lived a great life and still are, still am. But um, the, the purpose of my motivation was not money. It was the joy of producing things and pleasing an audience, whether it was when our band opened for Stevie Wonder or we played the main stages at Disneyland or whatever that was as a musician, I get the same kind of thrill when I see an audience look at something we did and have uh, an appreciation and you could see that, oh my gosh, those ideas that we had actually worked. They, they evoked the right emotions. You got some tears, you got some laughs uh, and people came out feeling better about whatever it was than when they went in. Okay. All right. So you sound like a really, uh, a good boss to work for. Um, the speaking about the, you know, the human element of things, a lot of uh, understanding your employees and such. Well, we tried to do that, uh, as a small production company, as a small production company, I had, uh, uh, a 401k plan, profit sharing, paid insurance, uh, partially paid insurance, uh, paid vacations, totally unheard of for a company. And at that, well, we started that when I had six employees. Well, that's crazy. Uh, I got as big as 30 and mostly we were somewhere between 12 or 14 to 25, uh, depending on the year and, and what the workload was. But, uh, and those, those are full-time and we ran payroll on anywhere from uh, 200 to a uh, thousand employees a year, which would be, you know, your part-time and a lot of your day players and people who are roadies for shows okay um now what would you say the project was that kind of launched your career yeah uh, the real the the project was a thing called welcome to san diego which was a multi-screen uh show that uh we we took around and my first big client was the san diego convention visitors bureau and 
that show opened the door to so many of the big clients in the early days that stayed with me for the next 35 years. Both American and NCR were the results of that, that, uh, uh, that show and that client. Okay, neat. Um, all right, so you like model trains too, right? Yes. <laughs> um, the only difference between men and boys is the price and the size of all their toys. So <laughs> I, like, uh, I like model trains a lot. I've got a huge layout up in our uh, second home up in Minnesota. And uh, uh, we have that second home because that's where our grandkids are. So, yeah, that's, it's, it's a lot of fun. I like model trains. I've liked them ever since I was a kid. I haven't, I haven't like used them, played with them in a while, but uh, they're in the basement right now, packed up neatly. And I don't know, I'll take them out eventually when I find the time. But I do really like them. I like the uh, um, vinyl stuff, like the uh, I don't, I can't remember name brands, but I do like them. So like I saw your uh, your Wolfman Park Railroad video. Seen it was very well produced. How long did it? How long did you spend filming and editing it? Oh, uh, filming and editing, that was probably, oh, three or four days. I, I uh, tell you a lot of, you put a lot of time into it. But the, 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 the real time was spent building the layout. We have a, a 2,000 square foot building on the property up in Minnesota. So I took all of that except for one corner where we parked the car and built this very large layout. And uh, that's that was the work. Uh, four years worth of work to get it to that point. And uh, it's a hobby that it never ends. You're always building something or, or taking something out and put something new in. And it's a lot of fun. And uh, I've got it set up so that I can run five trains simultaneously with a separate control on each one. And I let the grandkids, uh, we have four little girls and uh, up there and sometimes they're neighborhood kids and I'll set them up and let them run a train on a, it's really each one of them's on its own loop, so they won't run into each other. Okay. But uh, one of them drive their own trains, and the layout's so big that you can't see it all from the control area. So I have uh, cameras and monitors, so they can <laughs> see what the train is when he can't. But you can also, if they're just letting, if you just let one run on a track, they can jump off and they can run all the way around, all the way around the layout and follow their train around or up on the upper levels. And even in the tunnels and such, if you go under the layout, you can, I have, I've built pop-ups for the kids to get little stools to stand on and they can stand up and watch the trains go inside the tunnels past them. What so. is it like glass <laughs> underneath the, the floor? No, no, it's a, just a cutout. You actually sit right up and, and your the trains will go right past you. you know, oh, wow. You, That's cool. Standing up in there. That's really cool. So like how big's the layout? Um, it's uh, about 800 to 900 feet of track and, uh, it pretty well fills a, uh, all but one little corner of a 2000 square foot building. That's crazy. So this, this is not, that's, 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 a, big, that's a big layout. Um, all right. That's really cool. Uh, so what does an executive producer do? Well, executive producer, uh, it's funny that title means a lot of different things and it that it's not just a specific job a lot of the times you see all these executive producers listed on a film or a tv show most of them are the money okay you give me x amount of money to finance this thing and i will give you an executive producer credit 
Really? So, so that's one. In the case of the show I'm developing, I'm the executive producer, and my job is to pull together all of the uh, uh, different pieces and the concept. And in this case, there was a concept that was started. The person who hired me had this concept for a show. And I looked at it and I said, this isn't very good. I think I really want to take it up, up a notch and because uh, I don't think that this is going to sell to anybody. And uh, she said, what would you do? And I laid it out and she said, wow, that sounds great. And then we worked on it together to take her dream uh, for this show and turn it into something real. So she found the money and has participated. She is a co-executive producer, but she hired me to be the executive producer to bring all the pieces together and, and build a show that didn't exist. And, and then also to take it, and we were taking it to the sponsors and getting the network interest to get it sold as well. So it's a, it's a long process. And so that in this case, that's the executive producer. And then I'm hiring, for example, I hire other producers for segment producers for pieces of the show. Uh, we'll hire a, a technical director to do all of that. I have a terrific set designer and a terrific lighting guy who, uh, matter of fact, he's lit the, uh, the voice. He's lit um, every, just about every concert and TV event that uh, Usher does. He goes all over the world doing huge lighting projects. He did the moving lights for the Michael Jackson tour, and he did a lot of my shows uh, for my company. So I have a long-term relationship with him. Uh, his name is Eric Wade, and Eric is working with Roger Ambrose, who's my a production designer for the show and we're actually having a big meeting on monday to get the set designed and then we're working with the venue uh, there's a major hotel in vegas that's going to be involved in it we're probably going to host hold the show there it's a musical variety special uh that becomes a series and uh it's latin based it's a uh, all latino uh artists, singers, dancers, uh, comedians, musicians. Uh, and it's, it's really a fun, fun kind of extravaganza of, of, of music and entertainment, but it's in Spanglish. It's right. aimed at a English English. They speak either some or a lot of English, but their primary language is Spanish, both in North America and in South America. Okay, all right. So, like, is that going to be uh, like a, on a television network, or is it just going to be like a show people go to? Or no, it's, it'll be on a, on a network. It may end up on a streaming network. We have interest in, in a number of places right now. So, it, you said it's a musical show. Is it like uh, there's a storyline to it, or is it just what is no. it? No, it's it's. Uh, I can't get into it too far, but it it is. Uh, featuring upcoming and current big time uh, stars uh, in the Latin area that, for example, uh, it would be, for example, you may have, there's probably 30 or 40 different artists who are under contract to record companies, both in the instrumental side and as groups and as solo singers. And some of them are accomplished and, and really known 
and are up and coming, or some of them are, are fairly new, but they're really, really good and talented. You got the same thing all throughout Latin America. There's some incredible singers down there. They have the Latin Grammys that's huge, and they have some really great talent out of Colombia, out of Brazil, out of all the, all everything, Mexico, uh, Puerto Rico. Uh, so there's some Cuban groups that are amazing. And we've got people here out of Miami, just all over the U.S., too, who are Spanish-speaking uh, and English and uh, are recording in Spanish language and in, and in English. So those are all of the pool of people we bring in. So it's uh, new guest artists all the time, and there will be an interactive component with the audience, but it's not a contest show. Okay, just, and just a show. Comedians, comedians who do great great comedy and they're in english for for a, a line or two then they're in spanish but you get it and it goes back and forth and it's a lot of playing on the language stuff that is funny in both languages so okay cool. it, it's a very interesting concept very cool um sweet so do you have anyone you want to thank for where you are right now i'm sorry do you have anybody you want to thank for where you are right now who do i want to thank yeah. Do you, do you have anybody you want to thank? Uh, all of the people who worked on my team. Uh, it's a team art. It's not one person. Uh, and the all of the teams and the crews and the actors and the musicians I've worked with. Um, if there's one guy who really stands out, his name is Stan Beard. And Stan has done a lot of my best music tracks and he scored my feature the feature film i did and he scored a number of huge huge productions and uh stan is still very active and matter of fact i just hired him to do the theme song for uh the new tv show we're working on and we'll be going in studio on the 20th of this month to record that all right nice fantastic do you believe in ghosts I do believe it that there are there is another dimension that we don't know much about, but I believe it exists. So ghost per se depends on how you define it, but I I believe I am uh, I believe in God, but I also believe in the concept of the angel and uh, although we don't understand it very well, uh, there, there's something to it. Okay, do you have any uh, experiences or ghost stories you can share? Not really. Oh. I have, but I, I choose not to share them. Okay. All right. All right. We can move on. Um, what do you, what? Yeah, I read that weird. Uh, what do you think of powerful free editing software versus software you can pay for? Well, the, um, the, uh, the free software that I've tried and, and is just totally inadequate for anything professional. Uh, we paid for and bought, we used to be able to buy the program. And then actually when you had an upgrade, you'd, you'd pay a little bit for the upgrade. But now it's, they're all monthly fees. I'm using Premiere Pro and we've also used Avid. Those are the two standards in the industry. And okay. uh, uh, so I, I, everything that I do right here is on Premiere Pro. I used Adobe for a little while, but then I, I couldn't afford it anymore. Um, so I, I found this uh, software. It's just like it. It's just like Premiere, but free. And there's no branding or anything. And it's pretty powerful. Um, probably doesn't have all the exact stuff, 
that Premiere has, but it works in it works in hard with Blender. I don't know if you know what that is. It's another free software that's for rendering animations and such. So you can do a lot with the you can do a lot with it between Blender and uh, OpenShot, and that's what I use for my show, uh, just because it's simple and easy and free. And there's no there's, there's no branding at all. That's the good thing about it. Great programs out there, and if you find one that works for you, that's the great program. I'm using what I use because it's more of a professional standard, and uh, I I don't have time to sit and edit everything myself. Uh, never have. I use really good editors. Uh, I'll do a rough cut, uh, and I'll do a few things here, like the video you saw in my trains and all that, my personal stuff. But the for the high-end work, uh, we, we use other editors, and you want to use the software that is the industry standard so that everybody's on the same platform. Yeah. And that's a big reason to do it that way. And it's got the, the bells and whistles and it's the, the software that everybody already knows and it becomes the, the standard, as I said. So uh, if I have five or six different editors that we use, they're all free, on a freelance basis. So when we have something to get edited, I can send the files to any one of these people and they all already know that software. But okay, uh, yeah, the, it doesn't make sense to keep using uh, it. Now, now you don't buy it anymore. You pay by the month and you end up over a couple of years paying about three times more than you did when you used to be able to just buy the software. Yeah. But that's where that's where it's gone today. Adobe, they have uh, all their older versions up for free, don't they? You can just download it and use it as much as you want. Uh, but the, they don't get updated anymore. Like, what do you think about that? Like, why, why, why use the new stuff when you could use the older stuff just a little older for free? Well, the, the new stuff, everybody has it, and the, the older stuff is not compatible with the newer stuff. Oh, they okay. have, there's problems. So you have to keep up with it and uh, on, on a professional basis. Do you think they do that on purpose? Change the, change the software just a tad? Yeah, why wouldn't they? Sure. It's a, it's, a, it's a great business model, and it works. Because if you spend all that money to build a system and then you sell it once, then you suddenly have a market saturated because even as big as video editing is, it's not that big a market. So you need to have something to sustain and and grow with. So this, this new model that they have of essentially leasing their system um, makes a lot of sense. I don't like yeah. it as well cost me more but <laughs> yeah instead of just buying the program outright once you understand where they're coming from yeah no it's definitely you're going to make money somehow everybody's got to do it you know retail and everything but it's man why does got to be so much um <laughs> yeah i couldn't pay like i had the student pricing and i still couldn't afford it it was like uh i think i was paying like 25 a month which isn't much but it was like it just worked out to where it's like i was barely using it at the time, I did at the time. I didn't edit my show much at all. I just did it rarely, so it wasn't worth it for me. I mean, nowadays I edit every single show, um, every episode. I spend hours doing it. Um, so I mean, it'd be more worth it now. But I'm already found the free software. So if it works for you, then it's a great system. Yeah, it works, and uh, it does like it'll output any any format. You can use you can you can set it up to render in your GPU or your CPU. Uh, I don't have a good enough GPU right now, so I got to upgrade that. But you know, once I do that, I can render 
what takes you know a couple hours to do i can do it in 30 minutes once i do it right um it's pretty cool i enjoy it so that's nice um what do you think about the world would be what do you think the world would be like after the covid-19 thing settles down well i think it's uh it'll be definitely a little bit different because uh i uh in terms of our relationship with china is going to change and therefore a lot of the products that we get are will be coming and be manufactured here china has it looking at the geopolitical landscape has really kind of overstepped and uh the uh the administration it has really called them out on it and the covid uh coming from there uh is is pretty indicative of the the changes that are happening it's brought on the changes and brought to light a lot of the things for example the uh the offshoring of so many of our pharmaceuticals that we are totally dependent on no longer are made in this country. Really? Um, yes. The vast majority of antibiotics are made offshore, and a great many of those that come out of China. So if they cut that off, you're going to be short of antibiotics in all your hospitals nationwide. That's and yeah, lot, it's going to be a disaster. A lot of drugs as well. So all they have to do is go and we're in trouble. Well, that's been shown and now it's been realized and now there's something being done about it. So a lot of industry that come will come back here, uh, that is going to make our economy more stable, not less stable. So those kind of things are things that are gonna be pretty permanent changes, I, I think. And uh, I always look for where's the where's the good things that come out of tough times because you there's so much that you can't do anything about as an individual uh these things will happen and you have to adjust to them with my company i went through all sorts of ups and downs we went through the uh the, the whole thing with the uh collapse of the economy 9-11 just about tanked us every client we had canceled all their work with us for the next six months try to survive a company and keep your key employees paid for six months i ended up selling my home and That's taking a, or a lot of the proceeds to put back in the company to keep it going and keep people uh getting paid uh at least something for uh, my really key staff keep them on until we could recover and we did recover uh, but those are the kind of things that you, you can't do anything about it just they happen so how you respond to them and what you do and staying positive, even when you want to just pull your hair out and, and scream, uh, that doesn't do any good. You have to like settle down and deal with it. And that really applies to life in general. Okay. Yeah. The, so you said you, you, you sold your house, like you just bought a uh, smaller one or something. No, it was a large home. It's two and a half acres. And then a 6,000 square foot home. Yeah, you sold it to live a little under the means and stuff, uh, buy a cheaper house and stuff. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know where I was going with that. Um, all right. So, do you have a car? No. That's later. Uh, what can you tell them about your feature film, Proud American? Proud American was uh, 
a passion project. Uh, I raised the money and uh, came up with this concept. And it's five true stories that are uh, depicted uh, dramatically. And, uh, and it's a story of what's really positive about America, how people can start with little or nothing and make something of themselves. And every story is different and every path, human path is different. And when we showed it uh, first to the uh, test audiences, it got a lot of real strong emotional response. And then uh, when I showed it to the presidents of Cinemark, AMC and Regal, uh, as a uh, as an independent outside of Hollywood, they were they went into the screening saying, "Fred, we've been told this is kind of a emotional film, but don't be offended if we don't react because we've seen everything. Nothing gets to us anymore." And every one of them came out and said, "Oh my God, I I cried in that a couple of times. You got tears out of me, and uh, laughed and just real inspiring stories. Thank you." And they said, we'll give you all the screens you want for free nationwide. We went in 750 theaters, but the people who funded our uh, release uh, was fraud. It was big fraud, millions of dollars. And uh, so there was no advertising money at the very end to, to uh, support it. So it opened and closed in a week. And the presidents of all these chains said, if, uh, if you ever come up with the money to bring it back out, change the name. Uh, now edit a scene or two that you want to. Uh, we don't think you need to change anything, and we'll still give you all the screens you want. That's and cool. uh, never came back out. So I learned that I'm a pretty good filmmaker, and I'm a pretty lousy uh, distributor. <laughs> but uh, or I chose a bad distributor. Let's just put it that way. But we were in 750 theaters, and That's uh, cool. and if uh, those who did see it because no, with no no advertising advertising is so huge in films today they will spend almost as much in advertising uh sometimes more than the film cost to make and uh so without it uh you're real hard it's real hard to get an audience mm. all those Even, tv commercials and such all the tv commercials the various ads the yeah yeah tv and mm. radio yeah, those things are expensive. What do you think about that? The uh, the uh, this always bothered me. The uh, the you know the cable companies going out. Uh, you you know advertisers pay uh, you know to get their ads played, and then the customer pays to watch the ads. So like they're getting people from both ends. Like, what do you think about that? Well, most of the uh, uh, streaming services that you pay for. There's no ads in them. So you're paying for the product. And uh, Netflix and Amazon and all those and HBO have been that way. Uh, there's some of them that are mixed with some commercials, and uh, but fewer than on the broadcast, which is, quote, unquote, totally free. So uh, you got to pay for this stuff somehow. What's what's the what is the monetary plan and what's how how does the what's the framework to monetize the product uh people don't just make all these these very expensive products out of the goodness of their heart um mm. so you how do you how do you finance it you know in the case of a podcast how do you monetize it how do you take your podcast and get it to where it's interesting enough and fun enough 
that enough people start watching that you can actually start to make some money from it. And if you ran a little ad here and there to, to make money at it so that you could actually make this as a full-time job, would you? Uh, probably. And yeah, you I'd could, put thought into it. Why? Not, not too early, though. Like, I, uh, when I joined Anchor, they have a, an ad service that you can do. Like, uh, if you promote Anchor in the beginning or at the point of your show, like, you write, you, you do, the, you perform the ad and everything. It's, uh, it just plays automatically. Like, I wrote one. I, I did everything. It played for, like, the first six shows I did. And then I was like, why am I doing that? It's probably turning people away. Like, I don't have, I don't have an audience yet. Like, so I, I, I decided against it, you know, until, until the point where I actually have feedback on the show people that want to listen you know i'm not going to turn them off but at that point you know but i i have put a lot of thought into it uh it's just not that time yet for me but i well, think there's a, a point in time when it's right thing as you grow and and want to get it bigger that you you just what works and it's different for every individual that's what's great about this country i mean everybody can find their own path Every, you have the freedom to do all this kind of thing. And that freedom doesn't exist everywhere around the world. Uh, somebody without a lot of money. I started with $1,000 that I saved up. That's how I started my company. Talk about risk. Yeah. I used to, you know, I really was able to, I, I just knew which bars had, had the best hors d'oeuvres because that's where I would go for dinner. <laughs> Buy one beer and eat. <laughs> That's cool when you're starting because every penny goes back into the business and to the equipment and everything else that you need. That's crazy. So uh, what, what exactly did you do with that $1,000 to start the company? Oh, well, I bought equipment for the most part. Uh, got some, you know, got a small place to rent to start building things. And I, I had to, I had to have a client. So I had some income uh, going going forward, and then when I made the first big leap, I got a small business loan for thirteen thousand. And then in the Carter years, when the economy tanked, uh, within one week, my four clients that I had canceled their work for the, that time, and I was in real trouble. But one of the clients said, "We really love your work and everything, uh, so I'll tell you what, we'll buy you." And so for the cost of paying off my loan, they put me on salary and let me run. Uh, my company is a subsidiary. That's cool. I was a managing director. And then uh, by five years later, they were less than uh, 5% of my work. And uh, they uh, allowed me to do a leverage buyout. And uh, I, we were already uh, over a million dollars a year at that point. And I did a leverage buyout and bought the company back. And um, it, things worked out real well. So they... They got some great work in the time that I was there with them, but I was also building outside clients to where it was all the work that they got essentially was for free because my, my profits covered their internal work because I was doing more and more bigger shows outside the company. That's and, really uh, cool. So they helped you yeah. out big time there, huh? So I learned how to do a leverage buyout. I didn't know anything about it until I went into it. And uh, but some of my mentors were CEOs of big, big companies. So that's where I learned more and more and more about business. All right. Neat. All right. So do you have a car? Yes. 
what do you think about when you're alone in your car? I'm well, first of all, try to think about driving safely, but also uh, uh, it depends on the project I'm working on. Sometimes I'll be thinking about just have ideas about this or that. And there are times when I pull over to the side of the road and dictate uh, a note to myself on the phone uh, about an idea because you have this these ideas and when they come to you middle of the night or whatever, I always keep a, a scratch pad right by my bedside to get up and, and make a note about something. Yeah, sometimes you dream about something. Oh my God, that would be so cool in this project. Uh, that happens. So yeah, in the car and I relax sometimes too, but in California traffic, you don't relax a whole lot. Yeah. I can't imagine. Uh, you sit in a lot of traffic. No, I used to, but I don't anymore because I'm semi-retired and I do most of my work from right here. Well, that's good. Uh, all right, cool. Um, what is uh, your book? So we we did talk a little bit about your book, uh, Advocate Advocate for the Audience. Is there anything else you'd like to say about it? Well, some people wrote some nice things about it. Uh, uh, one of the things is Advocate for the Audience is one of those rare books that literally has gold on every page. Uh, it's a must read for anyone working with clients who have an audience. And if you're reading this, that's probably you. This book deals directly with the issues encountered in the film production industry with actual and interesting and extremely relevant examples to help the reader find solutions to the multiple film production problems existing today. Uh, great read. And it's from a uh, working producer director who, after he read the book, uh, wrote that, but then called me uh, about a month later and said, I used your techniques on about four jobs and my business is growing a lot. Today. Sorry, somebody so, just driving really fast by my house. Um, but yeah, that's really cool. Uh, so how long did it take you to write that book? Uh, almost three years. But I, I got to tell you, I, I took procrastination and turned it into an art form. Really? Uh, it was... Writing the book was really hard because I did most of the things in the that I wrote about instinctively. Um, I, I learned things, a lot of things about audiences when I was a musician, very young, and how to satisfy an audience and how to uh, run, if you will, the business of the band. And you know, working with musicians, especially young musicians, as we all were. Uh, it's a little like herding chickens sometimes because everybody's a free spirit and so on and so forth. So uh, all of those things really prepared me for what, what I would use later in my career. And the uh, the various techniques, figuring out well, what, what, what did I do? And my wife is ter a terrific, uh, she's a, a published author and she's also uh, very good on HR and uh, and, and, and management. So as I was talking about some of these techniques, she would actually say, well, you did this and this and this, and it's called the such and such technique. I, did. I didn't know that. He, she says, I know. I've watched you all these years, and you inherently know this stuff, but you don't know what to call it. You didn't know that you were doing this technique that's well-known in, 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 in good management. And so I started to go back through and 
and I told the whole book in, in true stories, things that happened, things that I did right, things that we did wrong, uh, things that uh, really worked out well, and how you work with really good people and, and the results of that. And it, it all, all these little points and how to pitch, for example, how do you pitch a new client? How do you pitch a new idea? Um, how do you take this idea of, a, of something you want to do, a project, a podcast, a film, a TV show, whatever it is, a story, and how do you develop it? What are the steps you, that you go through and in what order? And it's not the same. It's not always the same. People think, well, I'll write this script and I'll sell it to somebody. Well, you write that script and it's probably going to, going to go on somebody's pile somewhere and they may not ever read it or they may read it and just set it aside. The chances of really making a lot of money on it is very hard unless you go through all the steps to, to, to make it work and monetize it. Um, how do you build your own brand so that you're known for something? Uh, where's your niche? What do you do best and how do you parlay that into product that people want. Again, it comes back to advocate for the audience. If you're an advocate for your audience, you're not thinking about what's important to you. You're thinking about what's important to them. Who is this audience? And because I did a lot of corporate work, it's a different audience all the time. The audience of a tech company is different than the audience of, say, a Bridgestone Tires, which was one of our audiences. Uh, what are the commonalities of all human beings in emotion? Those are the places where you find commonalities between the audiences. But this audience is interested in this. And things that you and I would find colossally boring are really interesting to somebody. And if you're dealing with that audience, then you need to touch that. Touch those things that they're interested in seeing. What do they care about? And there's universal things and there's specifics to that audience. The more you understand that audience, the better you can satisfy them. Uh, at Disneyland, when we played there, over four sets in a night, our audience would change. 80 to 90% of that audience would be different audiences from set to set. Okay. So you're reading the body language in such of that audience live. Live performers uh, get a good feel for that. And if you're running a band you're going to change your set selection and your music selection based on how that audience is responding. And you'll, you'll see that they respond more to this, more of this genre of music uh, or the more up-tempo or the, the slower, the big ballad or whatever it might be. You, you choose your, to move your live performance around based on that feedback you're getting from the audience. Uh, and it's, it's really helpful when you start starting to move into the film video side, now you whatever you're doing, you're doing it not with a live audience. So you have to project in and understand who that audience is before you get going and hope to hell that when you get to the end, it actually works. And look at feature films. Sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. You, you take a shot. Who's that audience? Okay. What would be your best advice for somebody in like my position who's been doing this for, you know, two years, 80, 85 episodes in, you know, uh, struggling to gain an audience? Like, how do you build an audience? 
Well, I would talk to the, uh, reach out to the people who are watching and listening to you and say, what do you like about my podcast? What should I do more of? What do you not like about my podcast? What should I do less of? And listen to them and take it to heart and then separate the good ideas from the bad ideas and follow it and, and build it up. The way you, the way I got almost every client that I ever had was through a referral. Just word of mouth. The, the, the power of the word of mouth. And people who saw our work at one company, an executive moved to another company, and he went to one of their big meetings and said, oh, my God, you guys got to call Fred because his company does way better work than this. And that was Pitney Bowes. And uh, we went to them. And we, uh, from that point on, we did every show until uh, I retired from the company for uh, 25 years. Cool. And they're at, based in, in Connecticut. So I live right next the, to Connecticut. They're, well, they're close by. MasterCard was a client in New York. Uh, Learjet was a client. Uh, Cessna Aircraft was a client. Uh, Galaxy Aerospace, which was out of Houston, and uh, also over in uh, uh, Tel Aviv was a client. Uh, Sony Japan, uh, some, some folks in, in Europe. NCR was a global company. We went literally all over the world. Singapore, Rio de Janeiro. Uh, let's see, where else? Uh, Sydney, uh, Hong Kong, uh, Bahamas, Nice, France. I mean, the shows were literally all over the world with these various companies. And um, went to the Galapagos, uh, Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines was a huge, huge company. They're the ones who wanted us to do the documentary, the big one, on how they build the largest cruise ships in the world. We were in the yard for three years uh, with that, and it ended up being a three-hour documentary. Won a ton of awards, and we made money on it. But that came from a referral. The new president of Royal Caribbean was a former uh, senior executive at American Airlines. And I hadn't done a big documentary like that before, and he called me, he says, I want you to do this documentary. I said, well, why did you choose me uh, to, to do this? And he said, I've seen your work. I know you. I can trust you. And I, I figure that the skills that I saw you use for us at American are certainly transferable to this because it's story and you tell great stories. And we did. And it, it comes back to story and how to satisfy that audience. Hmm. All right, cool. If you could answer, you'll, you'll do a better podcast. You know, ask the questions, find the people that, uh, and, and draw them out uh, even better, no matter who they are. What's the story that touches your audience? Try my best. If you and if you're, well, oh, I'm sorry. If you're working in a company, uh, you know, this how to pitch. I'm talking about pitching films and, and ideas and such. The same technique works if you're just pitching an idea within your company that you want to get something going. And the principle of getting results, uh, and if you're, if you're pitching somebody, they're your audience of one or your audience of two or three. All right. Cool. All right. 
If you could trade places with any other person for a week, famous or not, living or dead, real or fictional, who would it be? I wouldn't. You wouldn't. I I am. I have billionaire friends. I have millionaire friends. I wouldn't trade where I am in my life with modest money, you know, adequate, but not. I'm not super rich. And I've been around the super rich. Don't want to do that. Um, No, I'm just happy in my own skin. Okay. All right, neat. Do you, uh, what do you think about like conspiracy theories, like uh, just in general? Uh, some of them are very real and some of them are, are totally wonderful fiction. Which ones and would you say are real? Which ones would you say are real? Give me an example. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I just, I thought you might have had one in mind. No, I don't. I really okay. don't. Uh, I don't dwell on them because if there's something I can't do anything about, I think about it, but I can't prove it one way or the other. If I can't prove it one way or the other, I don't know if it's BS or true. There's I things you suspect are true, but how do you know? Uh, yeah. You can't trust the internet, and I, and I know for sure, you damn for sure, you cannot trust the mainstream media. Yeah, so, I agree. Yeah look at everything uh with a real careful eye okay uh what do you think about the 5g conspiracy have you heard about that Uh, i don't know enough about it to make a a a good uh a good conclusion i do suspect anything coming out of china because i know they've been infiltrating this country for years you're starting to see them expel a lot of these grad students and such who are actually members of the uh, or have direct ties to the Chinese military. Everything that you do in China is connected right back to the government in some way or, or another. Uh, so uh, I think that China is our huge threat. It's not a conspiracy theory, it's a fact. We, we see it now. So uh, the question becomes, what are is the country going to do about it? And I think that right now the country's doing the right things uh, in that direction. So it, it's really a, a tricky thing. I think the 5G thing, I don't know enough about it to to say what's what, but I've heard enough. And I have some very good friends who are in high places at a couple of big tech companies um, that uh, tell me that, yeah, this the, the, the uh, keeping the Chinese out with this 5G thing and, and going domestically with it is a way better thing to do because there's all sorts of real nasty things that can be done with the 5G as well as great, great, wonderful, positive things as well. And yeah, I guess as raw- far as maybe taking, cutting, you know, uh, when I think China manufacturing, I think maybe cheap and uh, quick. So like, uh, you know, maybe they cut corners on it and it would, not be as uh you know they at&t or verizon would be doing it you know we're proper you know uh uh with uh you know specifications and uh what's the word uh more order more ordered things ordered right correctly it's not the one i want to look for but you know i think they'd probably cut a lot of corners and you'd have uh, transmitters broadcasting spurious radication um but you know, I don't know. But what I do know is a lot of people are saying that 5G caused Corona, which is complete 
crazy. Uh, I work in 5G. I work for Verizon and I install 5G. So I know a little bit about it. And uh, I do like I, I'm always arguing with people who are talking about the 5G Corona shit. I'm like, are you insane? They, they, they're, they're posting like Photoshop pictures of like half the leaves, like a, like a tree next to a 5G tower. It's like, first of all, there's no 5G towers. 5G uh, antennas go on telephone poles now. There's no 5G towers. Um, so they'll be they'll post a picture of a cell phone tower. It's like, look at this tree. Half the leaves are going on it. And like, it's in the, the direction of the tower. It's like, well, that's not how radio waves work. I don't know. I just, I, it blows my mind. But uh, that's one of the ones that gets me the most is the 5G conspiracy. There's a lot of, of crackpots out there. Yeah. So and there's a lot of people who, don't understand logic and don't understand science and and want to believe things and we're all humans we all can become uh, victims of uh oh that sounds so reasonable but when you think it really through if you know more then you say oh, that's that's not real so yeah you have to just question question everything uh and don't assume too much yeah, yeah. I, I'm a lot ham radio guy myself, so I know I know a little bit about radio. Uh, I know enough to be able to operate a radio and understand how it works to a point. Um, but I just I really like radio and uh, um, all that sort of thing, broadcasting. But um, that's just me. So, did you ever like work with film uh, in your production career? Yes, like, a lot. I did my feature. I shot my feature. Uh, all the things that we shot from Learjet and helicopter and some of the groundwork uh, was in IMAX, a big spectacle kinds of things and beauty of the country. Uh, those scenes were all shot in IMAX. And then uh, all of the drama scenes were shot in 35 millimeter film. And then we transferred uh, via scanning uh, all of the 35 into digital for uh, 4K and the uh, IMAX film uh, portions were scanned in 8K, and then we down-converted those to 4K, and the final film was created in 4K. Right. And, released, and released the, the theater version that you guys see right now uh, are pretty much a hybrid of a 2K um, uh, output to the projectors in the theaters, the digital projectors. That's what I've never heard of. What would two B, what would two K be considered? Like, you know, you got ten eighty P, then it's like four K and eight K. So like, is uh, I'm, I'm, I don't know much about it. I, I don't know that much because I rely on my tech people about that. But uh, the the essence of it is, it's the what you see in theaters is the better, way better than HD. Okay. But what you see your screens that look really good at home are usually not HD, not true HD. Uh, I think DirecTV was the only one who was providing true HD and 4K. And even that, it, it goes through some different kinds of compression uh, before you get it. But the, the truest stuff that you see in, in studio on the big monitors and such is, is un unbelievable. And I've seen, uh, I just stood by a, uh, a, a, video wall in LA. It's an experimental stage and it literally is so real and they've got it set up that if you take a camera and move it around and you, the, you're standing in front of this wall, you're standing maybe this far from the wall and it looks like it's in it goes to infinity. It's like yeah. three. I mean, you, you can't tell you look at through the camera 
and here's your, uh, you know, a person standing in front of this. You, they re, you swear they're in the scene, and as they move around, they've got the everything set behind so you can take the camera and tilt up, and it all changes in perspective. The scene behind you changes in perspective with where you move the camera in, move it out. So all of that is so real, and the uh, the the fine, fine grain and the precision of the projection is so good. It's just unbelievable. And I, I wanted to use it for uh, something I had coming up. And she says, well, to take your background that you want to use and put it into this format is about 45,000. And then to shoot on our stage is about 15,000 a day. And I went, Ooh, you're getting pretty expensive for this, you know, independent productions. Uh, and they're, they're setting it up. For, it's also for features and big, big, big budget things. So it was uh, really revealing. And it's way beyond uh, the 4K, the 5K, the 8K. They're, they've been camera shooting 8K now. 8K, yeah, that's yeah. It's finer grain than... Uh, Can't even see the it with the eye, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's insanely good. Uh, so the finer grain that you shoot with, even when you take it down to smaller, it just is, looks so much better because it, it can compress and it can blow up. So the big screen, that's, that's something also that's, that I think is important is the element of, uh, how you're presenting, uh, people who send their pitch out and somebody looks at it on the computer, like we're doing this right now. It's too easy for somebody to look around and take a sip of water and get up and taste, pause it, take a phone call, uh, and you're not immersive. The sound is never quite as good. Well, you've got headsets on uh, and you have pretty good sound, but you don't have a captured situation. Whereas if you have a big screen and you're in a theater with great sound, even if it's by yourself or with a smaller group, uh, and if you're with a big audience, there is something to the dynamics of that experience. First of all, you're in a room where it's darkened and there aren't distractions and you can really focus on what's going on. That's important. Uh, the immersion and the impact of that product versus on a, watching a video on your cell phone or watching a video on your big screen or watching a video on your computer as opposed to the theater experience or in a room like a screening room with a, a big screen, it's a completely different experience in terms of impact on your audience. So if okay. you're creating for the internet, you don't need 8K, 4K. HD is more than enough because yeah. you never see the difference. Whereas the bigger screens you go, the more you really need that. And as we go into the bigger home screens and such, the higher resolutions really do play out. You can start to see it and it, it just looks so cool. Um, so that's, that's where, and that's one reason 4k hasn't really turned on yet because for most people, you can't see that much difference between good, really good HD and, and 4k. Where does like frames per second play into it? Like 60 frames to 30 frames, or I think it's 24 for standard. Uh, 24 is, was, is the standard for film and you get a little bit of flicker and it has to be uh, compensated for uh, when you go to video 
video, most of it shot 29.95, uh, 30 frames a second, uh, essentially, and sometimes 60 frames a second, which gives you in editing the ability to speed up and slow down uh, accordingly. But the product that comes out and goes into most things is is it, uh, the 29.95, 30 frames a second is is pretty much the standard. But you can shoot in other formats and then bring it down to whatever you want. Whenever you're down converting, generally speaking, it's better than up converting. Up converting, it's like taking a small uh, image in a negative film and blowing it up, you get all the grain. It's, it's just not fine enough. The finer grain that you shoot with, the finer detail that you record in video, uh, that makes it much easier to take it to any size or, or uh, and of course, when you bring it down, you don't, you never lose quality making it smaller. You, that's why stuff looks really great on the small little monitor. And then you start blowing it up. If it's not really, really good to start with, it'll start falling apart as you see the grain and you see the, um, the little pixels. Okay. All right. So like I used to, record my show when i used like obs or whatever before you stream right i used to record in 1080p 60 frames a second so like that basically useless no it it'll look better than uh normal internet but depends on what your use is how, how good does it have to be what kind of images are you doing if you're just like you and i talking we're talking heads we're not showing beautiful footage and and such uh if you're starting to really show some footage, then you want the higher uh, quality. Okay. But for this, it works just fine. Because how are people watching this? Are they watching this on their big screen TV or are they watching it on their computer? Computer, most likely. There you go. So how big are the computer screens and how much quality do you need? Okay. okay it doesn't, I just, I guess it was just overkill. Um, I don't know. I, I just think I was like watching YouTube videos, how to get the best video kind of thing. It's like, oh, these are the well, settings you got to have. I was like, all right, we'll do that. It's always better to go higher quality and then broadcast it out in uh, in whatever format that it is, because the higher quality always looks better than the, the rest. But the other thing you have to look at is uh, what's your, what's the lighting like? How's your lighting? Uh, lighting is really important to any picture. You can have the best camera in the world, but if you have crappy lighting, it still looks like crap. Mm. You, you have to light it. Uh, what, are, what are your backgrounds? What are, your, what, what's, what are you surrounding yourself with? What's behind you uh, that either adds to your image or distracts from it? Um, all of those things, you take a look at those, those pieces of it, and as you're doing your podcast or whatever, for anybody doing that, uh, those things are important to to your brand and to your product because it's about the audience. What are they seeing? What do they perceive about you and uh, the content you're presenting? Okay. All right. Um, moving on to another question. What is uh, what is your favorite format of music? Cassette tape, CD, vinyl record, or digital? Um. Uh, I'm not a big fan of vinyl because of the scratchiness and noise, 
but uh, the pure sound of the analog, uh, and when we were recording uh, 24-track analog, um, pre-digital, had more overtones and was richer sounding than today's digital, although it's gotten way, way, way better, and you don't have to worry about the uh, noise levels like you used to. So that's like, where the Dolby came in originally was to take the hiss and everything out from the tape. Yeah. Uh, so I like where we are today. It's it's terrific. Um, but if you ever go and listen to a, a live concert, an acoustic concert, say a symphony in a nice hall, and then compare that to recordings. And the recording, you're, you're dependent on how it was recorded, how it was uh move from the original recording into whatever medium you're listening to it on. And usually that's a downgrade. And then from there, it's what kind of speakers, amplifier and everything else do you have? So the finest stuff is so cool that it comes awfully close to live and everything else is something in between. I'll just come back to audience again. What's the audience going to be happy with? And how can you deliver it uh, in, in a form that's affordable to the most people if you, if you want it to be successful and be out there for a lot of people? So it's always like anything else, there's trade-offs. Okay, so if I got that right, you think you said cassette tape you like better, right? No, I don't like cassette tape at all. It's way too... too uh, I, I digital to cassette tapes, but the kind of tape I've been talking about is the, in what we use in studio, what we used like to use in studios. tapes? 24 track. Oh, okay. That was digital. Oh, all right. Yeah. I wasn't that digital audio tape. That makes sense. Yeah. I'm not familiar so, too much with it. I just really like cassettes. The analog is, is very seldom used anymore. The, the standard is, uh, you know, m multiple channel digital but they're using really, really better processors than ever before. And they're getting better all the time. Okay, cool. All right. Um, using a scale of one to 10, rate yourself on how weird you are. Or eccentric. One to 10, I, I missed the last part of that. Rate yourself on how weird or eccentric you are. Weird or eccentric. Um, I should probably ask my wife. She'd probably rate me up there pretty high. I think I'm somewhere <laughs> in the You said you're somewhere else you cut out. Um I if my if you ask my wife, she'd probably rate me as a, a pretty high in the eccentric, but I I think I'm somewhere in the middle. Okay. All right, that's fun. Um what makes you put what makes you put yourself in the middle there? Well, I try to be balanced. I try to live a balanced life and have fun. Uh, I've had fun. I mean, talk about having fun. I have had fun my whole life doing what I do. I love what I do. Uh, I, I am looking at these new projects that I have right now. And I took them not because I, I need the work. It's because I want the work. I, I, I love it. I just love it. I still love it. That's good. And I'm and I'm 72 years old and I still love it. You look really good for your age. Well, thank you. I wouldn't have I'm, said you were 72. Well, I am. And uh uh 
Clint Eastwood's my hero. He's in his 90s and still working and directing. That's but, who you look like. I was thinking Christopher Lloyd. You do look yeah, like Christopher Lloyd. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's as a director, your, your look isn't all that important because it's the people that you're putting on the screen. But it, it's so much fun. Oh, my gosh. I, I've had more fun than many people deserve. And I'm still performing on trumpet. I just uh, did some Memorial Day work. Matter of fact, TV, local TV covered it. And uh, I play in bands for fun. Uh, and so I get to do my music. I'm still in the production business, but I'm not running a company, so I don't have that stress. Uh, and my wife and I have travel and have a, have a great time. We got the grandkids and, and, our, and our daughters, and it's, life is good. Fantastic. I'm glad you're having fun, man. Uh, what was your favorite project as an audio engineer? As an audio engineer, uh, it was mixing sound live for the Moody Blues. The Moody Blues? The Moody Blues. I've heard of them. Yeah. Cool. That was a long time ago. And at that time, we didn't have all that sophisticated of, uh, of, of the audio systems like you have today. And they didn't carry their own audio guy on the road. Uh, in each town they went to, the, all the even the supergroups would hire people. And uh, I, I ended up doing Three Dog Night, Can't Heat, uh, Moody Blues, uh, Steppenwolf, uh, all, all the groups. Count Basie Band did sound for them on, on some live gigs. But the thing about the Moody Blues were they were the ones who really understood uh, – the early days of don't play so loud on the stage that the the sound coming off your guitars is louder at the microphone uh, for the singer than your voice is. And they would get all this distortion and such because they were playing when PA systems weren't good and they weren't miking all the instruments. Well, we were miking everything and that they were one of the first groups and I continue did the same thing. They would, play softer on the stage, realizing that we had this massive sound system that was taking it out there, that they didn't have to turn their amps up so loud to distortion just to come off the stage to a big crowd. Yeah. And we were applying it through a giant system. So turn it down to where it's, it's, it's still out on stage, but it's, it's comfortable. And uh, the, Moody, the leader of the Moody Blues was really good about that. And then after I mixed their first time uh, through San Diego area, where I lived and uh, they requested me for all that time because most of the sound engineers at the time weren't musicians. They were sound guys. Um, and because I knew what the group was supposed to sound like, because a lot of these guys were PA system guys and uh, having the musical ear, I was able to deliver for Moody Blues a sound that was closer to what they did on their records. And they liked that. But they were fun. They were fun and they were easy to work with. Three Dog Night was amazing. It's the first time I'd seen guys stand so far apart in a room and sing perfect harmonies live. Uh, nice. That was pretty cool. And Ike and yeah. Tina it was unbelievable. Ike was kind of a jerk. Turned out he was really a jerk. But uh, they they were had a hell of a show. And they were fun to mix. I love that music, too. I played a lot of uh, in a lot of soul bands. Okay, all right, all right. 
Yeah, I haven't heard of that one. You said it was Three Dog Night? Three Dog Night? Look it up. All right. I'll have to look it up. Cool. Uh, what are your goals for the next few years? Have fun. Have more fun. Travel with, and, and enjoy my family. Do All a right. few jobs. Fun. All right. Cool. Fantastic. Uh, anything production-wise or... Uh, well, the, if the, uh, if we go all the way and it gets picked up, which we think it will, this new show, uh, the series, uh, I'll probably, uh, I'm under contract to direct the pilot and the first four episodes. Then I'll be turning it over to another, uh, director. I may stay on as, uh, well, I'll get something as show creator long-term and I'll probably stay on as executive producer for a while until I turn it over to other people to continue the work. Uh, I see that as being the next uh, two or three, three, maybe four years. And then, uh, then I'll probably just uh, retire and do some consulting now. And then I might take a directing job here and there. That's really fun, but there's a lot of work in just preparing for even just a directing job. It's not just showing up and directing people. You've got, for every minute on set, you've got at least an hour of planning, at least an hour of planning. Just for a minute. That's nuts. That's a lot of hours. Okay, cool. Um, That's one reason that films and productions cost as much as they do. Hmm. There's a lot of people on the, on these sets, you know, you, you think, oh, they're making all this money. Uh, some are, but, uh, the, the time on set is preceded by many, many, many man hours before it gets there. Not just the director time, but the producer's time and the coordinator's time and the designer's time and the art department and the uh, people who make the set look right. And, you know, all the planning, the logistics are enormous for every shoot, even a small one. There's a lot to do. All right. Um, cool. What is, uh, you ever have any strange or crazy experiences, uh, in, in life? Just, I don't know. There's about 40 of them in here. <laughs> More than that. Um, yeah, uh, I think one of the wildest experiences, uh, was in the middle of a show in Rio de Janeiro. Now this is a corporate morning show, but we opened with a big Samba thing, uh, big samba ensemble of about uh, 50 dancers with uh, the live music that is like, it's like uh, uh, Rio, you know, and, and a little bit of the Mardi Gras and Carnival. And they come out and they do an opening number and then here we are in Rio. So this is the, the local culture. And one of the things that they always do in these shows is at some point the girls go topless. Really? Just do. And so this is a corporate morning meeting that opens the big business meeting show. So we rehearsed them. We, we made very clear, don't take the tops off no matter what this is. And we did a full dress rehearsal with the tops on the tops didn't come off. I made sure that they reminded them even before they went on that morning, stay, you know, stay covered. You get about halfway into it. They're into it. The audience is roaring. Off comes the top. (laughs) The chairman of the board walks over to me after the the whole meeting was done. He says, well, Fred, 
and this is my boss's boss's boss. Uh, he says, well, Fred, I hope you have something really good for the ladies to look at tonight at the, uh, at the big e evening entertainment show. So I called uh, our local people and said, I don't care what it takes the dancers tonight. I need 10 more really hot looking guys who are shirtless in this show. And uh, for the, for the, all the ladies who were in our audience and sure enough, he came up to me the next day or yeah, the next day when we were leaving, getting ready to leave. And he says, that was good eye candy for the ladies too. So <laughs> it was a pretty cool CEO, but okay. uh, it was an NCR show in Rio de Janeiro. Interesting. That's, that's cool. Uh, all right. All right. How do you separate your work life from your personal life? You don't, not in this business. Really? It's, it's immersive. Uh, and my, I have a very tolerant and wonderful woman that I'm married to. And she understands that when I wake up in the middle of the night with an idea and I write it down and I talk to her about stuff, you, you can't just turn it on and turn it off. It's, it's, it's such a part of you. If you're a musician, you're, you're listening, everything you listen to out, out there, there's music everywhere. You're, you become more hyper aware of it. Uh, my wife does tease me though, because she will spot continuity breaks in, in TV shows. And we both generally can tell you on a TV show the plot before it starts based on the, the preview and how it's going to end. Um, occasionally we get fooled. But, uh, you know, it's it just becomes integral. Okay. What's, uh, what's the last time you guessed the plot of a show? What show was it? Last night, uh, and it was... Uh, Blue Bloods, but okay. that's it's pretty predictable. I, I don't mean uh, how does it end. Well, it ends with uh, all of these stories are getting wrapped up and you know an outcome done. But figuring out what is the outcome going to be or on a who done it, figuring out who done it uh, early. But okay. one of the one of the great classic movie that you're, you and, and any of your listeners and viewers may want to watch is The Sting. It was directed by a guy named George Roy Hill, and it had uh, Newman and Redford in it. And they are so good, but the, the story and the way it's told has a lot of plots and twists in it, and it is really, really good. And, and as a young director, I watched it in theater about five times because I was really pissed off that I couldn't figure out uh, the, there's a, two or three different pieces of it, big pieces of the plot that are surprises. And they usually foreshadow that. If you, there's little hints. And if you're smart enough, you can figure them out. And I went back and studied that film because those hints were all there and I missed them. They were so good, but they were there. And I was, yeah. So those kind of things are really fun to do is uh, can you see the foreshadowing? And in film school, they'll tell you, if you show a knife in the first scene, you better use it somewhere by the last scene because everybody's going to be waiting to see how it, how it plays into the, into the script. So you try to, uh, have fun with your audience and get them guessing. Don't you, you know, let them in on some things, not on others. 
uh, fool them, scare them, uh, have a twist that is logical and and you go, oh, I didn't see that coming, but I should have. <laughs> yeah, that's that's cool. I like doing the the secret stuff, like putting in little Easter eggs and stuff like that. And the things I do. Do you ever do that? Well, we always put in little things. Yeah, yeah, little hidden hints uh, in in dramas in particular, because. It's about storytelling. And what's the best thing about storytelling? You don't know the end until you get there. But if you get there, you say, oh, that I never thought of it that way. That makes sense. And you go, "Woo, that's cool. cool. What are the films that you like? I mean, think you don't have to talk about them, but just think about them. Everybody, think about those films that you really liked and why did you like it? What was so cool about it? Um, and depending on your age at the time you saw it, it'll it'll change. But what was it that held you? And usually it's story. Why are some of the great films revisited and you want to see them again? Yeah, yeah, story. Story. How can we tell it better and, you know, they want to redo it? My thing is, like, I like the Marvel movies, the MCU and such. I really like those movies. Cartoons, yeah, the plots are pretty simple, but uh, the the way they get there and the twists and and such are fun, and and a lot of them require you to suspend reality. You know that this and that can't be real. Superman doesn't fly, yeah, but he does, and that's wonderful and thrilling. And you suspend reality because. It's done so well that you believe it and you want to believe it and because you're into the story. And I, I consider the films that I, I think are the best films for me to watch is the ones that I forget to look at technique. I forget to look at how they shot it. I forget to look at what about this character or that character. I just get involved in the story and I can't wait to see where it goes that means that I have now turned off all of my professional side and I'm just enjoying. And uh, so movies and, and TV shows and such, they're all over the place. Some of them are really good. Some of them are terrible and some of them are really fun. And what a wonderful variety we have to see and experience and how many audiences different audiences for each large audiences for all of these venues. How many podcasts are there and how many audiences are there and how do you capture them? Yeah, there's lots of podcasts. Like, it's ongoing. Yeah. Never ending. Um, that's, uh, that's awesome. Uh, so last question, um, unless you have any questions for me. No, good. Go ahead. All right. Uh, what is the funniest thing that ever happened to you? The funniest thing that ever happened to me. Um, the funniest thing that ever happened to me is my staff set up a gag for my birthday that I didn't see coming. They had someone set up as a uh, client that was coming in to see a demo. And they, they set it up beautifully. We got this call and this client's coming in and we'll introduce you to him because I was uh, out 
uh, on production, on location. And so when I got back in town, they had it all set up and we had a, a theater room and I was in there showing them at one of our demos. And uh, then they, we, they liked the demo, the, the person who was there liked the demo very much. And then started saying something about, well, you know, it was a whole setup and a storyline and all of a sudden the music started my my cat my whole crew was in on it and the people were kind of peeking around the corner and it was a male stripper just giving me the business and it was so hysterically funny the whole staff came in and it was a it, there was their happy birthday joke on me and that was hysterical <laughs> okay cool um when I you could at least had a woman strip for me, but uh, no, they 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 thought it would be funnier if it was a male stripper. He was a little embarrassed too because he was he was straight, but you know. It's all <laughs> okay, that's awesome. Uh, all right, cool. Uh, so, Fred, it's been it's been awesome talking to you. Why don't you shout out and plug anything you'd like again? Well, one more time, I'll just say that uh, my book for anybody who's not only in the production business, but in any small business or starting out has anything to do with building and growing. Uh, we all have an audience. We all have customers. And this book will help you grow your business. It has helped a lot of other people already. Advocate for the audience. And you can get it at fredashman.com. Fantastic. Links will be in the description. Uh, everybody, thanks for listening. Fred, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I had a fantastic time talking with you. I learned a lot. Um, everybody out there may be listening on YouTube. You can also listen on Anchor, Spotify, Apple uh, Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your podcasts. Uh, it's all available. Just search the Hey, How's It Going show. Everybody, this is Fred Aspen, who is a director, pilot, musician, author, CEO of his own multi-million dollar company. Uh, semi-retired now. This is the Hey, How's It Going show.